Good morning and welcome to episode 789 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, brought to you by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I'm Sam Miller, along with Ben Lindbergh of 538. Hey, Ben. Hello. How are you? I'm surprisingly okay. This used to be, or usually is, one of my least favorite days of the year. Kind of the post-holidays hangover vacation, whether an actual vacation if you're in school or sort of a vacation if you're in work that week between Christmas and New Year's. And my birthday's on Christmas, so all of the good times of the year were concentrated in this few weeks. And then I was always depressed the first day coming back after that to the real world, Mm. but not so much this year. Why do you suppose? I think because of the book. I think because we were working on the book over the break and we're so tantalizingly close to being finished with the revisions that I have that to look forward to. Good. Well, you should write another book after this then. (laughs) Yeah, totally worth it. it. (laughs) Seems to be the secret to a happy life. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, anything, uh, besides your, uh, emotional state that you want to banter about? Not really. Okay. Well, me neither. Well, may, I guess, yeah, sure. Uh, I guess it's not my topic, so we might as well banter about it. Okay. What's up with the hitters? What about the hitters? None of them are signed, Ben. That's true. So I'm looking at our top 50 free agents and, uh, Hayward is signed. And after Hayward, the next best hitter at number four isn't, nor is number five, nor is number seven, nor is number eight, nor is number 11, nor is number 12, nor is number 15, nor is number 17. Excluding Zobrist and guys who took the qualifying offer, you have to go all the way down to Daniel Murphy to find another hitter who's signed, whereas, of course, every pitcher up to Wei-Yin Chen, who is our number 22 free agent overall, has signed. And then the three guys after him, four guys after him, five guys after him are all signed as well. So, of course, everybody knows that the hitters are all unsigned and the pitchers are all signed. But do you make anything significant out of it? Or uh, is it just uh, the market kind of moving uh, as a um, as a school of fish and uh, everybody will end up getting paid at the end just as though uh, this all happened in December? Yeah, I'm sure everyone will end up with jobs, but... I don't know if there's, in some years, you can kind of point to one player that's holding things up. Like in the the Tanaka winter, it seemed Mm -hmm. like everyone was waiting to see if Tanaka would be available and for how much. And so that kind of held things up. I don't know that there's a hitter equivalent to that. I don't don't really think so. The Orioles wanted to sign Chris Davis, and he didn't seem to want to be signed yet. People have been talking about Cespedes and Gordon. There's been negotiation obviously and there's been rumors and news but i don't know why some of these guys haven't signed yet right it's, time. it's not as though some team like is waiting to see where cespedes goes before they sign howie kendrick yeah no and maybe they're waiting to see i mean these are all corner outfielders we're talking about well, other than other upton, than davis upton the corner outfielders are upton cespedes and gordon and mm-hmm. even those three aren't real like you know they're very different players Cespedes can play center that was one of the the great walkier revelations was that he can kind of hang in center Uh and so I'm sure that he's out there telling teams that he can play center uh but you know there's some overlap between him and Upton but Gordon is kind of a in a lot of ways a very different player but I guess yeah I guess a corner outfielder 
different corner uh, <laughs> than the others and uh, different kind of player and different role and very different, I would imagine, very different contract coming to him. And then after that, you have a first baseman, a center fielder, a shortstop, a second baseman, and Denard Span. So not a lot of real overlap among any of those guys. Nope. Yeah, I, I don't know. People have been busy with pitching for whatever reason. And then the next hitter after those guys, after uh, Daniel Murphy and Estrubal Cabrera, is David Freeze, who's a third baseman. So there's nobody in his way. Yeah, not really sweating the, the David Freeze free agency. No, but much. it's also kind of odd that David Freeze hasn't signed. I mean, we've talked about how it, the later you go, the market usually favors the the teams and disfavors the hitters. And you don't normally see that usually one guy or maybe two guys ends up uh, either uh, waiting too long or misjudging the market or getting paid, but later than you expect. But an entire class of free agents making it to the new year is odd. Yeah, that is strange. I mean, we're we're only, you know, it's just barely January. We're, we're only a, a month after the winter meetings or not even. Yeah, and yeah. So it's, it's not super late. It's definitely notable that there's been so much pitching activity and not as much corresponding position player activity. But I don't know. It's not so late that I think there's some kind of market force going on necessarily. All right. So I'm looking at, I just uh, Googled real quick, an MLB trade rumors two days ago wrote a post on January free agent signings. Uh, 2011, the only significant January signings were Adrian Beltre, Rafael Soriano, and then February had Vlad Guerrero and mm-hmm. a one with a one-year deal for the Orioles. So that was 2011. 2012 was Prince Fielder, which everybody remembers is the big late signing. Uh, in late January. The only other deals were Coco Crisp and Hiroki Kuroda, which were fairly small-ish deals. 2013, Nick Swisher and Edwin Jackson signed right after New Year's for four years each. Raphael Soriano and Adam LaRoche got two-year deals. And then Michael Bourne and Kyle Loesch made it out of January unsigned. And then um, last year, the only significant free agent move in January was Max Scherzer deal. And then later, Colby Rasmus signed for one and eight, which was seemed low. James Shields signed for what seemed low. And Frankie Rodriguez signed a one-year deal. Two-year deal. Mm-hmm. I think a two-year deal. Two-year deal, yeah, in February. So that's basically four guys in the top 30 or 40 free agents last year. And now we have like 10 in the top 20. Yeah, okay. That's unusual. All right, good. Just all I wanted to hear. <laughs> Right. Just can you use the word super weird? Mm, weird. That's right. weird. All right. I, now I've got to get you to say super later in the show and then splice it together. <laughs> okay. Tweet it. Uh, <laughs> all right. So I did. I wanted to talk about another move, though, that did actually happen. Uh, and I'm curious whether you'll find this move super weird. If you do, feel free to say so. <laughs> okay. Uh, but the uh, Dodgers signing Kenta Maeda to uh, one of the odder, I don't know, odd, maybe odd's the wrong word, complicated, unique, unique. I, I can't say one of the more unique because unique is binary. One of the uh, less familiar contract super, structures. Super weirdest. There you go. Uh, contract structures that we've ever seen, I think. Fair to say? I mean, yeah. after, let's see, just off the top of your head before we start, 
What are the super weirdest contracts that you can think of? I have two in mind off the top of my head. Uh, well, maybe maybe three ish. Trying to think of long term. I mean, there are weird ones like Tim Wakefield's. That's my deal. number one. That's yeah, if we were drafting Red super Sox. weird contracts. That's number one. <laughs> right. Basically, just giving the Red Sox the the option to keep renewing him permanently. Um, yeah, forever. Yeah, <laughs> that's a weird one. Um, what else? I mean, like Wayne Garland, the deal that some people have compared this one to, in that it was a decade long. Yeah, that was that was odd, an odd move, mm-hmm. but only in retrospect. I think at the time nobody knew what free agency was going to be or what contracts were going to be like. And so I don't really, I I guess it seems weird because it's Wayne Garland. Like, didn't Dave Winfield signed a yeah. ten year deal? And yeah. Uh, so let's see. Let's look up Wayne Garland. Wayne Garland coming off a twenty win season, twenty five years old. Cy Young votes. You know, meh. I guess it's not that that one would be weird if it were signed today Uh because who would be the equivalent there? That would be like if, well, I guess it'd be like maybe if Dallas Keuchel or maybe more, more realistically, if Colin McHugh signed a 10 year deal right now, Uh it'd be like that. But that was the first days of free agency. I mean, like nobody had any idea how to do it. Yeah. Right. They were, it's like going, that's the weirdest bike riding I've ever seen. Well, yeah, it's the first time you ever got on a bike. looks weird. (laughs) What else? Roger Clemens, maybe? Oh, right, where he got a prorated deal uh, yeah, for every week he back played, basically. Mid-year. And, yeah, and, and it was such an expensive deal. Yeah, uh, and he didn't have to be with the team all the time. He was just there sometimes. So yeah, those are weird. good ones. The, the uh, Chase Utley, I remember trying to figure out whether the Chase Utley deal was good or bad because it had like three vesting options for three different years. Uh-huh. Do you remember that one? <laughs> yeah. And it was like, well, to, like it, you, you couldn't tell whether the back end was super team friendly or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that I thought of the Wakefield one, I thought of that one. And then I guess you could say the John Carlos Stanton one is yeah. odd because it's so team friendly up front. So he has the opt out, but he also basically is costing him a ton of money. It seems like in the first five or whatever years, however many years before the opt-out. So I, I didn't, I forget what we saw, talked about. But yeah, that one, it was an odd imbalance as far as player opt-out goes. So then we have this one, and we don't know the details yet. Uh, we are there. The, it has been reported that they will take a while to finalize, which isn't surprising because they're very complicated. But uh, Eric Steven rounded them up as we know them for True Blue LA. And most of these have been reported by Either Christopher Miola, who nobody knows, but has broken news from Maeda's uh, agency before, and so seems to be reliable, and Joel Sherman of the New York Post. And the basics are that it goes for eight years and $25 million. Not per year, (laughs) which... It's, I actually had to think when I first saw eight at 25, I had to think what's more realistic here (laughs) and knowing that it was the Dodgers, if I wasn't following closely, I could have seen it, but it's eight years. You had asked, you had given me those two options before Before. the news came out and asked me which was more likely. Exactly. (laughs) Probably probably would have said the 25 a year. Exactly. 
So eight years, total of $25 million. Of course, the Dodgers also have to spend $20 million on the posting fee. So that's eight years and $45 million guaranteed. Eight years, by the way. Eight years is a long time, but $25 million is not a lot of money. Neither is $45 million. Uh, but then a lot of incentives, 10 to $12 million a year in possible incentives. Incentives, a lot of some people don't know this, but incentives can basically only be for playing, not for how well you play. So you can't get an incentive based on how many shutouts you throw. You can get incentives based on how many batters you face or outs you get or innings you pitch or games you start uh, or games you finish. And so uh, presumably these are all innings-based incentives. Uh, and if they are, say, say they're uh, reachable, then uh, maybe up the upper end he would be getting $15 million a year uh, plus uh, over eight years, plus the two and a half million dollars a year that the Dodgers have to pay prorated out over those eight years for the posting fee. So now right. you're at which he doesn't get, of course. He doesn't get to that, his right. old team, but uh, right, but that doesn't matter. His uh, whether he gets it or not doesn't really matter. It's what the Dodgers have to pay. Uh, so the Dodgers will be paying at the upper upper end of this if all of this is true, about seventeen and a half million a year for eight years. But with very, very, very little of that uh, guaranteed. So if he's uh, horrible uh, and they don't want to pitch him, or if he's hurt and they don't want to pitch him, then they're only going to pay $45 million over eight years, which is a crazy low amount to guarantee a guy who uh, is a question mark to some degree. But, um, well, we'll talk about that. But who, you know, I think most people probably, uh, well, I'm looking at, Tim Dirks on uh, his free agent top 50. Uh, he estimated $80 million guaranteed before the offseason. Uh, and so it's, uh, you know, it's half the guarantee. Uh, and not only is it half the guarantee, but it's, tw- you know, twice the years that anybody would have expected. I mean, to get him for eight years, if he's good, uh, is forever. And he's, what, 27. So it's not like this takes him into his late 40s or anything like that. So, uh, so it's a very interesting move for a number of reasons we can talk about. I guess there are three interesting reasons. I'm just going to, I'll just lay it out here. Three interesting okay. reasons. One, I'm going to write them down so I don't forget them. One, uh, relative uh, uncertainty of Japanese pitcher. Two, Dodgers prioritizing risk, at, or I don't know what is, uh, absorbing risk. Now, what is it that the Dodgers are doing? Dodgers, uh, Dodgers are, I guess the way to say it is they're chasing uncertainty instead mm-hmm. of uh, going and getting David Price, going and getting Jason Hayward, going and getting any of these guys who are relatively sure things. They are chasing mm-hmm. uncertainty. Although they might have liked to have a couple of those guys and they tried well, to get a couple of those guys. They didn't try the way that they're allowed to try, which is offering more money than other teams. True. They tried apparently other ways uh-huh. uh number three betting on oneself contract precedent established here all right so ben where do you want to start <laughs> let's start with the first one because you've written about it uh relative okay. uncertainty of japanese pitcher are japanese pitchers relatively uncertain ben i wrote about i wrote about this <laughs> you did you wrote about yeah you talked to a bunch of gms about or maybe you talked to one i can't remember about uh, uh, whether it was about the uncertainty of Japanese hitters, or maybe it was about the uncertainty of yeah, that's right. Of, it's it's uh, coming back to me. Yeah, yeah, Asian hitters in general, uh, foreign league hitters 
And I re- remember a GM basically saying, I think I remember, I don't necessarily remember this, but basically saying, yeah, we have no idea what to do with hitters. We have no idea what to do with Norioki, uh, but we're pretty good at pitchers. Yeah, well, definitely relievers. Relievers seem to do just fine when they come over because they're basically doing the same job that they were doing in Japan, other than some slight differences like the the ball being different, that sort of thing. But the schedule that they're pitching on is pretty much the same. Whereas starters, I think there's more uncertainty because they're changing the way that they work and they're being forced to work in a five-man rotation for the first time in their careers or for years. And Joshian wrote a whole thing today going through the history of Japanese starting pitchers. And it's funny because in the MLB Trade Rumors post, there's a line about the successful transition of NPB arms like Tanaka and Yu Darvish reducing the uncertainty regarding Maida. And Sheehan basically came to the opposite conclusion and says that it increases the uncertainty because there is a history of guys doing well for a year or two maybe even being among the best pitchers in baseball for a year or two. But then invariably something bad happens, whether it's Nomo who was, you know, great for a couple of years and then just a, a middling starter thereafter, although he hung on for a while or guys like Darvish, who was one of the best pitchers in baseball, but has been hurt and Tanaka who has been effective, but hurt at the same time. And Matsuzaka, who really had one good year and then was hurt and bad. So all of these people have come over and established themselves as good early on. And you can see why teams wanted them and why teams paid a lot for them. But then something happens. And maybe that has something to do with the workload. The fact that I think, let's see, Maida pitched 206 innings and I think led the league last year. Japanese pitchers just basically top out at about 200 innings and not that major league starters pitch that much more now, but more of them reach that mark certainly. And some of them surpass it and it's just a different schedule and you're pitching uh, with less rest and recovery. And maybe that's a difficult adjustment to make. So it seems like there is a lot of uncertainty long-term with, with these guys. And a lot of them have come over and succeeded right away, but then broken down. Episode 55, The Unpredictability of Japanese Players. <laughs> well, good recall. Well, kind of. I have no idea what we said. So do Japanese... I don't... You don't know this. Go do research, man. Do... <laughs> I mean, do Japanese players, Japanese pitchers break down in Japan? Or is there something about coming here, changing workload, changing baseball, uh, changing whatever? Yeah, you always hear that... There's less Tommy John surgery in Japan. And I'm, I'm Although kind of looking, rising. Yeah, I'm looking forward to Jeff Passan's book because he went there and, and found out about that. And he knows things about that that I don't know. So we'll find out. But it seems like it's less common there. And maybe that's just because people don't throw as hard. And it seems like throwing hard is one of the, the best ways to hurt yourself. So... Do you think that when a Japanese pitcher comes over here, he throws harder? Well, you hear that, that there are fewer holes in the major league lineup. So there are fewer places where you can take a, take a batter off. And 
there's a DH. There's no DH in Japan, or at least in the Central League, I think. And so you don't get that break if you're coming to the American League. And uh, you would think that if every hitter is better and you're putting more pressure on yourself to succeed in this new place, that maybe you are closer to your maximum effort all the time. But I haven't seen any data on that. I don't know if it exists. Uh, You quoted Dan Evans in your article at the time. Uh Evans believes the transition is toughest on middle infielders and starting pitchers. Starters must learn to take regular turns in five-man rotations after years of pitching with six or seven days of rest. As Evans acknowledges, that can be a difficult adjustment as it involves teaching your body to respond to a different throwing routine and also getting used to working on a different calendar entirely. Evans thinks relievers have the best chance of replicating their production since their roles differ little across leagues. The numbers back up his belief. A 2009 study at Baseball Prospectus by Clay Davenport revealed that while Japanese starting pitchers suffer a 20% performance penalty after arriving to the majors, Japanese pitchers are almost unaffected. The historical struggles of Japanese infielders might be bad news for Nakajima, but the success of relievers like Kaz Sasaki, Takashi Saito, and Koji Ohara bodes well for... Longtime Hanshin Tigers closer and fellow relief fellow free agent Kuji Fujikawa, famous major <laughs> league ace closer and huge success. Whom Dan, forgive me, whom Evans believes will quote be a standout reliever immediately. Uh, so it's I guess it's hard. I mean relievers, as we know, it's it's interesting because relievers are probably the easiest to relative to uh, well the easiest to scout relative to scouting you know American players. Uh, mm-hmm. And yet we also know that relievers are inherently uh, unpredictable and prone to uh, blow up because of sample size issues and the fact that they're generally flawed players to begin with. Uh, let me then close the Japanese uncertainty portion of this uh, by asking you whether you think that if you Darvish were a free agent right now, uh, his contract adjusted for inflation and so on would be different than it was when he actually signed. And I guess same question for Tanaka. Uh, if they had just, if they had happened to have been born two and three years later, four years later, uh, and hit free agency or been posted this winter, would they get different contract offers? Has the Do you think that the Maeda signing is an indication that the league is uh, sees these pitchers as riskier than they did when Darvish, Matsuzaka, Tanaka were hitting Maybe. I I don't know if I would have guessed that before this this contract. I didn't guess that before this contract. So in light of this contract, it's easier to interpret it that way. And then you can start citing cases like Darvish and Tanaka, guys and Iwakuma, guys who've been fragile and, and broken at times. So sure, I, yeah, <laughs> probably. I, I don't know if that would apply to Darvish because... Darvish seemed like kind of a, an exception to that in that all the things that you often hear about Japanese pitchers, whether it's about their build or about their stuff or their velocity, that sort of thing, Darvish, those those criti- criticisms and caveats didn't really apply to him because he's big and he throws really hard and he throws everything. So if he were on the market, I'd still think he would get a big Darvish kind of deal. So I don't know, maybe with Maida, maybe it is that you just, he's not a big guy and he is, he doesn't throw that hard. And maybe some teams think he's 
more of a mid or back rotation type of guy than the ace that everyone thought Darvish would be and that he was before he got hurt. All right. So now to the Dodgers. Uh, since Friedman took over, they have signed Brett Anderson, Brandon McCarthy, both seen as uh, as volatile, high risk, high injury risk kind of guys that they uh, that they pursued. Uh, they have signed Hector Oliveira, and I think. Well, let's see. A number of the Cuban signings predate them. Uh, anyway, they signed uh, Hector Oliveira. They signed Chase Utley. Uh, they signed Scott Casimir, who is a, sort of a similar kind of guy. And now they've signed Maeda, who, whether you think he's risky or not, the contract suggests that they think he is or that he is being treated as such uh, and that he's going to have to prove himself. Uh, they've also signed, you know, they also traded for Howie Kendrick and Jimmy Rollins, who are extremely safe bets, and Yasmani Grandal, who isn't particularly risky bet. So it's not that they're only getting risky players. However, they haven't signed, that I can think of, they haven't made any single huge acquisition, right? Is that is the biggest star they've acquired thus far, Brandon McCarthy? Yeah, they haven't they haven't signed anyone to a mega contract from outside the organization. Yeah, and so this is, for one thing, it's completely different than how the Dodgers were being run under Ned Coletti, but also under Stan Kasten. But for another, it's very similar. It's like essentially how the A's and the Rays were run, except with, you know, more, more capacity to sign more of these guys. But uh, it feels like they're in a lot of ways bringing the same philosophies that uh, they had in Tampa and Oakland to the Dodgers. And um, we kind of talked about this a few weeks ago, but does it surprise you that they continue to kind of nibble and that they, I don't know, sort of see themselves as really trying to play the small market game, but better and with more money rather than playing the big market game? Yeah, or it surprises me that they're not trying to do both at the same time because there are advantages to working within those constraints. And maybe that's why teams like the A's and Rays have been at the forefront of the analytical movement and why they've largely been very successful given their their contract, their, their payroll, because those constraints force you to innovate and maybe force you to be smart and maybe don't allow you to make mistakes on the same order as other teams that can spend a lot more money. So I can see advantages to wanting to port that mindset over to the Dodgers and not just spending freely on whatever great free agent is available because there are there are limits. Every team has some sort of limit, it seems. And if you can continue to be efficient, then that obviously helps. But if you're the Dodgers, you also get the added bonus of being able to buy the best free agent every now and then who fits your roster really well. And you would think that they would take that option. They would exercise that option now and then, unless they really think that free agents are such terrible buys that it's just never the best move to make, even if you can afford it. Yeah, I feel like we're you and I and others are kind of constantly evolving on the question of whether teams with the sort of money that the Dodgers and Red Sox and Yankees have should make the kind of moves that so often end up regrettable. And 
Um, I think that maybe my peak go ahead and do it moment was when the angels signed, I don't know, maybe it was Josh Hamilton. And it Mm -hmm. was, it was like they, everybody had seen how disastrously the Pujols and CJ Wilson deals looked even after one year. And yet it didn't in any way keep them from going and just making another incredibly big investment in another guy they wanted. And that you can never really like, there's always going to be a way for the rich teams to find more money to be rich. Uh, And I don't know that was maybe the peak and maybe I've come down from that a little bit, partly because Josh Hamilton was really bad and the angels have been bad. But I think shortly after that signing though, that was when we noticed the extremely low, correlation between money and success in the Uh league. And um, one of the reasons seemed to be that, yes, having uh, lacking these sorts of uh, restraints that are put on small market teams, big market teams get these big contracts that not only cost a lot of money, but which they seem to be able to outrun, but that lock them into relatively bad players. And that's probably more than anything. I mean, Carl Crawford is still playing, you know? And it's not that Carl Crawford is keeping them from signing somebody better. Maybe he is, but it does seem like their teams are able to outrun these contracts more than we give them credit for. Uh, But that Carl Crawford keeps playing, and who knows who he's blocking, or who knows what move they didn't make, or who knows what gamble they didn't take earlier on. And So I don't know. I I, I think that we were probably were way too hard on the extremely rich teams acting extremely rich and taking a little too much... Uh, pleasure in watching some of the bad contracts turn really ugly. Uh, mm-hmm. But on the other hand, it does, I mean, I, yeah, I don't know. I, do you think that Friedman, when he was with the Rays and he saw the Red Sox sign, say, Lackey and Crawford, do you think he was jealous? Maybe not in those specific, or, well, I mean, when he when he lost Crawford to the Red Sox, I would, I mean, I, I would think so, right? Really? He, he probably, I mean, he didn't want not to have Carl Crawford. So you don't think that he went, aha, got him right where we want him. They they just sunk all this money into Carl Crawford. And I know from, you know, marginal value over replacement player that that's a bad move. And, uh, and if they just keep doing this, then we'll spend them down to our level or below. And that, and that uh, <laughs> Theo will get fired and end up in the NL. And then his replacement will get fired too. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, do you, do you think he saw that coming or do you think he really thought, I hate this game. I hate, I, I hate that this is so unfair that they get to go sign Crawford uh, and that we never get to. I think he, there must've been an element of the latter. Maybe he thought that was too much money to spend on Carl Crawford. Maybe he even thought if he had had the money to spend on Carl Crawford, he still wouldn't have spent that much on Carl Crawford, but still like, losing players and watching other teams take them in your division. I mean, he he, he couldn't have known that that contract would be such a disaster that Crawford would get hurt and hate Boston and decline so soon. I, I'm not giving him credit with that much prescience. So I would, I would guess that losing your best player at the time to your rival must have been frustrating on some level. So I wonder if he thought if I ever got a team like that, I would. I wonder if he had an idea of how he would respond. I don't know. I. I mean, I expected him to to continue to do smart things and try to operate efficiently, but also be willing to 
make some large expenditures at times. I do. I do think that one thing that somebody really smart one time told me, uh, in fact, I think it was when I was writing about the lack of correlation between money and, and team success, uh, they said if, if their team suddenly got, you know, X million dollars more, uh, and they could spend it, uh, they would, they would spend at the bottom of the, they would always spend at the, the smart way to do it is to spend at the bottom of the roster, not the top. And I think that that's probably, I don't know that it's been tested. I've never tested it, but I do think that that is plausibly the right way to do this. And you could make the case that the Dodgers are continuing to spend money. I mean, they, they are signing a lot of people. If you just stack up how many people they add uh, compared to, you know, the Rays and the A's, uh, it, they are spending more money, obviously, a lot more money. Mm-hmm. But they're doing it to have depth. They're doing it to have no weak spots. They're doing it so that they don't have Pete Cosma playing shortstop uh, in October or something like that for them. Uh, and that seems smart. Now, you can make the case that having taking on a lot of risk puts you in a position where you might end up with that anyway. You might end up with Chase Utley playing second base in October, but they've signed and added so many quality major leaguers that there's overlapping risk. There's uh, still, you presume, a little bit of margin to add guys as they need them, which they might not quite have if they were signing the Grankies and the Haywards instead. So, um, so yeah, maybe it's... Maybe that's a perfectly reasonable way to do it, and uh, I don't know. I think I still, pro- I think I prefer the way that they're doing it. it. Seems smarter this way, right? I mean, it seems surprising that they're letting these great, relatively, relatively sure things go to other teams over money because they have money more than any other team, and sure things are really good. Uh, but it's not like they're not building a really good team, <laughs> and it's mm-hmm. not like they don't have twenty-five good players mm-hmm. out yeah. there. Uh, and, uh, there's no team other than the Cubs that I would, uh, less want to have in my division, uh, this Mm -hmm. year and next year and the year after that. Uh, so this isn't really criticism. It's more like, huh, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, last year people wondered why they didn't sign a a more certain starter, like why they didn't take the money that they spent on Brett Anderson and Brandon McCarthy and give it to James Shields instead. People, people wondered that at the time. Because Shields seemed like a sure thing. Yeah. And as it turned out, Brad Anderson was better than Shields. Yeah. <laughs> and McCarthy broke right away, but Brad Anderson was really good. And I guess there were times during the year when they needed starters. I mean, they had 16 pitchers make at least one start for them. And they resorted to Matt Latos at one point. So they did have guys like Scott Baker and McCarthy and Brandon Beachy who were injury types and they ended up contributing nothing basically, but they also then found people like Mike Bolsinger, who was like a analytics find and he was really good. So um, they, and they won 92 games and they won the division by eight games and they went into the playoffs with Clayton Kershaw and Zach Greinke and had as good a chance as anyone did. So they could have, I mean, they could just keep signing people and maybe build a a 98-win team instead of a 93-win team or something, but maybe they haven't had to, and maybe this is more sustainable. Like, there's no boom and bust. It's not like a Tigers situation where they sign a bunch of people, and then those people get old, and then they're stuck with those people, and they don't have prospects because they've been forfeiting draft picks and trading prospects, and Dodgers just have this thing where they have 
kind of a, you know, they have a sustainable roster here, it seems like, and they keep adding people to it, but then they are able to call up people like Peterson and, and Seeger, who they didn't trade when people thought maybe they should trade those guys, and they didn't, and now they kind of have a higher floor as a team because they have those guys locked in for a while. All right, last thing. This is uh, probably the most personal risk that any player has ever taken on his own performance, especially relative to his total earning power. Do you uh, do you like it? <laughs> uh, no. I, I, again, we, there are a lot of details we don't know, but I don't know why he would have signed this deal at, as of now. I mean, we don't know what other offers were out there, but... There were other teams interested. I don't. The Diamondbacks had been talking about him for a year. I don't know if they were as competitive post Granky and and uh, post Miller as they would have been before. But they were supposedly interested, and the Astros were supposedly interested. And I don't know. Maybe it was the only West Coast team that wanted him. But still, it's it's strange because if he if he hits all the incentives and he is really good and to hit all the incentives he would have to be really good then he'll make decent money i guess i mean it what did you say 17 or something is kind of the max he can make over this contract i mean if he did make 17 per year for eight years i mean that's that's a lot yeah yeah it's a lot he'll be rich he'll be rich but man like if you if you're gonna bet if you're gonna give up so much certainty to get the you know upside of being good like i would think you'd want a lot like i would think the incentives would be like 30 million now the problem is that you can't get 30 million a year the problem is that you can't ask for anything more than innings and or you know or the like so it is kind of hard because there are bad pitchers who get 195 200 innings a year uh that you don't want to pay 26 million dollars to uh, but like, I don't know if I were him, like he could come over and win three Cy Youngs and only get, you know, 17 and a half million a year, which is normal. That's a normal thing that happened. Like Dallas Keuchel won the Cy Young and he didn't make that much, but Dallas Keuchel didn't give up a whole bunch of potential earning power yeah. uh, in order to bet on that upside. And it just feels like a very, it feels like a low ceiling given how low he has accepted the floor, but maybe it's. Maybe he has no choice. Maybe that's what was out there for him. Yeah, but that's gets confusing if that really was what's out there for him. I mean, if yeah, I mean, it's if, hard to imagine that is. Maybe teams are really lower on him than we thought. But given what other guys are getting, I mean, what what are the other? I mean, given what Jay Happ got or any of the other, you know, Marco Estrada or pretty good pitchers, decent pitchers, without really much longer track records of success than than he has it's strange i mean if you if you want eight years then you obviously have to give up some annual average value average annual value but why would you want eight years so much that you're you're only getting three million a year it's it's very odd i mean that's like that's like league average salary basically is what he's signing up for, or maybe a little bit more. And league average salary is like including pre-arbitration guys who are making nothing. So it's weird. I don't I don't know how to explain it. It's not even like he's really betting on himself so much because even if he maxes it out, it's really not that 
huge a deal. So right the the yeah exactly. So uh, so then the what are, what are the chances that there's an opt out in this? Because if he's really betting on himself, there's an opt out after yeah. year two, and then he really gets paid and. Then the Dodgers are taking on a bit more risk because, le- like, let's say it was two years. Now the Dodgers are on the hook for you know forty five million guaranteed if he's horrible, and twenty you know maybe forty five over two years if he's good, and uh, and then he'll opt out and get paid when he hits free agency at twenty nine, and everybody's seen him pitch in the in the majors. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would make a lot more sense, right? Yeah. So just knowing that. Just knowing how much more sense the whole thing makes if there's an opt out, do you just would you bet that there is an opt opt out? Yes, I okay. think it's very likely that there's an opt out. I agree, thereby uh, invalidating like eighty percent of what we just talked about. <laughs> well, even I mean, if there is an opt out, is it still? I mean, even if there's an opt out after two or three years, I I mean, I, well, then you have to then you really the three million a year then makes more sense because the Dodgers do have to pay those that $20 million for just two years or three years yeah. of service. And so now you're talking about, you know, you're, you're talking about even if, like, let's say he didn't pitch and he still opted out after three years. That's still $29 million over three years, which isn't that cheap. I mean, it's pretty cheap, but it's not that cheap mm-hmm. uh, for a pitcher who uh, hasn't pitched in the majors yet. Um, and uh, if he's actually good and opts out, then you're paying – that plus the 10 to 12 million dollars in incentives every year. So that actually looks like a normal contract structure because the just basically because the posting fee is all up front. Mm-hmm. So there's got to be an opt out. There's an opt out. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we're reporting it first. All right. <laughs> so we're done? I'm done. Okay. So you can send us emails at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. Now that the holidays are over, we'll probably be back on a more regular schedule. You can join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild. Rate, review, subscribe to the show on iTunes, and support our sponsor, the Play Index at baseballreference.com. Use the coupon code BEP when you do and get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. We'll be back soon. 